Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Okay, the best place to see polar bears in the world, bar none, is Churchill, Manitoba. They have these things called tundra buggies, which is a cross between a monster truck and a school bus. So the bears can come right up. They can stand on their hind legs and not reach any of the people inside. And one day we saw 43 polar bear, which was an enormous number. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Gary Arndt. He is one of the top digital travel influencers of the last decade. He's one of the most awarded travel photographers in the world, and his travel blog, Everything Everywhere, was named one of the top 25 blogs in the world by Time Magazine. Originally from Wisconsin, Gary was one of the top competitive speakers and debaters in the United States for both high school and college. He then built and sold a seven-figure business and eventually began traveling the world. Since 2007, Gary has been to over 130 countries on all seven continents and has done nine years of full-time travel with no base. He has visited over 400 UNESCO World Heritage Sites and nearly every national park in the United States and Canada. Since 2009, he has been the co-host of This Week in Travel, an award-winning weekly podcast that covers travel industry news. And Gary now writes and produces a daily podcast called Everything Everywhere Daily History, which features unique and interesting stories about people, places, and things from around the world. And oh, by the way, he grew that to over 100,000 monthly downloads in the first year. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So good to have you here. And we should just start off by setting the scene and the fact that you and I have agreed to do this interview as a wine night. So I am in Asheville, North Carolina this evening in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I have just opened a bottle of Barbaresco, which is an Italian red wine from the Piedmont region in northern Italy, made from the Nebbiolo grape, and was actually one of the first four DOCG designated wines in Italy about 40 years ago. So it's tasting pretty good. I'm going to be drinking through that through the episode. Where are you tonight, Gary? And uh, what are you drinking? I am in northeastern Wisconsin, and I am drinking a bottle of 2016 Cherry Blossom Pinot Noir from Napa, California. And I had a big box of, of wine because I'd always get these free bottles from everywhere I would travel. And I, they just kind of piled up. And I'm drinking this because it had a twist on cap and I couldn't find a bottle opener. I love it, man. Well, let me just start off out of the gate since we opened this up with wine. What is your best travel wine experience, either a vineyard or some type of experience you've had in a wine country around the world? What comes to mind? Oh, there's a couple. As far as vineyards, believe it or not, there are some actually really good vineyards in the south of Switzerland. It's probably not well known as a wine region, 
but if you're on the north side of the lake, it gets the, the sun because it's in the south. Uh, it's actually really good. And uh, there's a whole wine region around there. They actually have a wine festival that they they hold only once every 20 years. And they just held it. Well, so they were supposed to hold it last year, but I don't know what happened with that. That's a really interesting area. The best wines I've ever had would probably be either in Margaret River. I visited a winery there and they let me taste a Chardonnay they had. It was like a $100 bottle of wine. It was their high-end thing. It was, it was really good. And then there's also a varietal that you can only find in the Basque region of Spain called Chocoli. And you can't really find it anywhere because uh, they don't export it. it. It's only consumed within that region. And uh, it's what I use every time I, I have a sommelier at a restaurant and I want to stump them. I see if they even are aware of it. I know they won't have it. And I remember when I started traveling full time, I went to Las Vegas with one of my friends and we had dinner at Picasso's at the Bellagio. And it was the most expensive meal I have ever had before or since. It was 500 bucks for two people. The menu consisted of the right-hand side or the left-hand side. That was the kind of sommelier that, I mean, they had a, a wine list that was the size of a phone book. I mean, it was crazy. I, their wine cellar would be amazing to look at. Well, those are some great regions. The Basque country is one of my favorite places. I lived in Bilbao for about a month and probably the most expensive meal I have ever had, which is actually the only three Michelin star restaurant I've ever been to, was in Donostia, which the Spanish referred to as San Sebastian uh, in the Basque country, which I believe has the highest concentration of Michelin stars per square meter of any place in the world outside of like Kyoto or something like that. And the culinary scene and the wine scene is just amazing. San Sebastian might be the best food city in the world. Uh, when I was there, they have these little dining clubs. They're primarily for men. And they have these storefronts, like one club will usually get it one night a week and they'll share it with other clubs. And what they do is they just cook and play cards and, and drink. I got invited to one, which was a rare thing. And they made like a rabbit lobster stew, which was really good. And I got to hang out with them. One of the other things I should say I really like, probably even better than wine, is the ciders from the Basque country. I visited a cideria in, in the Basque country and the, the really all of northern Spain, but, but the Basque region in particular, the ciders there are fantastic. And I remember really going out of my way to hunt them down back in the U.S. because they're very hard to find, but well worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gary, I want to give our listeners a little bit of context on you and kind of go all the way back and get a little bit of your origin story. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up? And as you were coming up, I'm curious both about how your interest in travel developed. And I'm also curious about your debating experience because you were such a high level debater. What were sort of the core skills that you developed for that? And how did those skills end up serving you and providing value later in life? I grew up in Wisconsin, a very middle class, blue collar family. I learned to read very early, basically. And I, this sounds weird, but I taught myself how to read, basically watching Sesame Street. And I remember the first day of kindergarten, I went there and they, they phoned my mom and they go, Mrs. Arndt, we have a problem. She goes, what? She goes, Gary can read. She goes, yeah. She goes, none of the other kids can read. He's the only one who can read. And so they tried putting me in first grade for a while, but my parents thought it would be a big thing if I was a year younger than everyone else. And so I was always a little bit different from my rest of my family. I read a lot. Uh, you know, there were no books growing up. I, the only books in the house were the ones I read. And in high school, I discovered uh, the debate team. And I was doing track. And when I discovered debate, I was like, screw that. This is my thing. I can be really good at this. And I was pretty good at it. And most people aren't familiar with academic debate. If you actually go see some YouTube videos of like the finals of the national debate tournament in college, it's something that you probably won't understand, mainly because they're talking so fast. But I also did an event in high school called Extemporaneous Speech. It was one of the top 10 in the country. What that is, is you pull a question randomly and you have 30 minutes to prepare a seven-minute speech. And I did foreign extemp, which meant that it was always questions about foreign policy, foreign relations, what was happening in other countries, things like that, which it was, there's two different types, foreign and domestic, and foreign's kind of considered the, 
the more superior one in the same way that the Senate is kind of superior to the House. I was recruited to do debate in college. I went to uh, McAllister College, who had won the national tournament the two years prior to me arriving. My coach was the first national champion, actually, back in 1946, actually, when he got back from the war. I had a pretty successful career. And when that was done, I coached for a few years back in high school. And then I had a friend call me up and he said, hey, there's this thing you should check out. It's called the World Wide Web. <laughs> I remember seeing my first web page was on a 9600 dial baud modem. And he slowly pulled up this web page from the Library of Congress. And it had pictures and a formatted background and fonts, which was not what you're used to seeing at the time, right? It was just all kind of block text and stuff like that. I ended up moving up to the Twin Cities. We had an apartment. And while we were doing this, he built a product to easily tie together a database to a website because it was really hard to do in the very early days of the internet. Today, everything's done that way. But back then, it required Perl scripting. There was no PHP. There was no MySQL. There was no Linux. There was none of this stuff. And so it was an expensive proposition. You had to get a copy of Oracle if you wanted to use the database, which was like 20 grand. And Microsoft was coming out with this new thing called Windows NT, which would be a low-cost server. You could put it on a normal computer. You could get a, a cheap database like Microsoft Access. Really changed everything. And this product was called Cold Fusion. It still exists today. It's owned by Adobe. And uh, as he was building this, he had companies coming to him saying, we would like to have our, our website running this. But he didn't want to get into the business of actually doing websites. He wanted to focus on the product. So he asked me, like, do you want to do this? So I'm like, sure. So I, I started building these data-driven websites. And next thing you know, we had another and another. And I had a friend, so I hired him. And he had a friend, and I hired him. And fast forward four years later, we're doing these big data-driven websites for newspapers, financial institutions. I had 50 people working for me. I was 28 years old. And I sold the business to a big international company. And they didn't have me run the business that I created. They put me in a different office with no one above or below me in the org chart with really nothing to do. And they're paying me six figures to do this. So I would show up at around 10 a.m. every day, made it very obvious that I was there, say hello to everyone, you know, be kind of loud. I would surf the internet for two hours. I would then go to lunch and not return. And some of the easiest money I ever made, that's for sure. And uh, after that, I started a couple other companies. It was a horrible time because of the dot-com bubble burst. Decided to go back to school for a few years, studied geology and geophysics, and decided I did not want to pursue a career in academia. I didn't really like the environment. Uh, I enjoyed learning. Wasn't really a great researcher. And then I, I hit upon the idea of traveling around the world. Didn't I thought, yeah, I could do this. I got money saved up. I don't have a wife or kids. There's no reason why I can't. So that's what I did. And I know that you started off spending a lot of time in the Pacific Islands. And I would love to hear a little bit about that experience, both in terms of it being your initial region of your world travel and also tips that you have for folks in traveling those areas. Because I know you've been to a lot of places out there that not that many travelers go to. So I'd love your reflections on it for you personally. And then also your, your tips for people that want to travel that region. Yeah, I, basically, my plan was to go west. That was the plan. So I started in Minneapolis, rented a car, drove to Dallas, took a train to L.A., flew to Hawaii, spent uh, two weeks there, learned how to scuba dive in Maui, and then ended up going to Tahiti, Easter Island, the Cook Islands, New Zealand, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, American Samoa. And I was the kind of guy that would read the encyclopedia growing up or an almanac. And I always read about these places I knew their names, but I didn't know anything about them. They were just specks on a map. So I wanted to go see that stuff myself. And also, it's, it's, it can be one of the more difficult parts of the world to travel in, uh, simply because flights can get changed. For example, all of the, uh, in, I, the, the only time I ever bought a guidebook in my life was for this stage of the trip. And most of the information regarding flights was all wrong. No fault of the author. They just airlines went out of business and, and they stopped doing stuff. Uh, so that that was a little bit challenging. And yeah, not a lot of people go there simply because of the distances involved. You know, they think of all 
islands with white sand beaches as being kind of the same. So if they can go to the Caribbean or they can just go to Hawaii, why do they need to go to Samoa? And uh, a lot of these places also don't, well, at least at the time, and I'd still say it's the case, especially in like the Micronesia region, they don't have the infrastructure for tourists. They don't get a lot of people that come. I think Micronesia gets maybe 10,000 visitors a year. And the vast majority of those, I think, are coming from Guam. And they're there on business issues for the military government stuff, not tourism, tourism. So it's, it's, a, it's definitely a worthwhile place to go. It's definitely not overcrowded unless you're going to Tahiti. And it can be kind of expensive to get around, but it can be done affordably as well if you're willing to not go to Bora Bora. <laughs> well, one of the experiences that you have had that I want to hear about is that you swam in the Jellyfish Lake in Palau. And I should also just sort of preface this by saying as well for folks that some days I feel like I'm a reasonably well-traveled because I've been traveling full-time for eight years. And then I go to your blog, Gary, and <laughs> I don't feel like I'm well-traveled at all. Although your blog has helped me to sort of identify a number of bucket list items that I would like to put on my list and start to plan on how I'm going to do them. One of which is to swim with the jellyfish in Palau. Can you explain a little bit what that experience was like and how someone would go about doing that? Surreal. Palau is a very small country, probably the best scuba diving I've seen anywhere in the world. And they go out of their way to protect their marine environment more than any other country by a wide margin because that's their economy. It's tourism based on diving. Some of the islands in Palau have lakes in the middle of the island, and these lakes are fed with seawater that filters through the cracks in the limestone. What happened is, long time ago, jellyfish either came in through the cracks or were deposited somehow, and once they got in these lakes, they were basically protected from predators. And so they basically evolved away their stingers. So they are about the, the biggest ones, I'd say, about the size of your fist, from the size of your thumb the size of your fist. And there's tens of thousands of them. And they basically just hang out in this lake all day following the sun. And you don't scuba dive. It's just snorkeling. You can just see them all pretty much close to the surface. And I grew up in Wisconsin. I never saw saltwater until I was 21. So I don't know any better. So I just jump in and start swimming around. <laughs> Most of the people with me were from Australia. And they grew up terrified of jellyfish because they got like box jellyfish and stuff in Australia, and those things can be really nasty. So they're all showing trepidation and getting in the water, and I'm just swimming around the dumb American who doesn't know any better. Turns out I was right. They, <laughs> there's no danger to them, but it's a very surreal experience. And there's a lot of videos you can see on YouTube uh, taken from the jellyfish lake. And I think there are actually some in Indonesia as well that don't get as much publicity as the ones in Palau. But it, it's definitely something that you you should do. And if you do scuba dive, Palau has to be on your list. It's not cheap. It's one of the more expensive places to scuba dive, but well, well worth it. What other, I know you're a diver, what other scuba dives would you tell people to put on that list? Because I got certified and I have just intentionally to go to like really epic places, right? So I've done scuba diving with whale sharks in Thailand, and I've done scuba diving in the Galapagos Islands, but I haven't really extensively done it around the world. I'd love to hear what have been your sort of top dives that you'd put on people's radar. Palau would have to be at the top of the list. I did it off the shore of Lanai in Hawaii. They have some pretty neat caves that are well worth it. I did a couple dives in Fiji in the Yasawa Islands, and the coral there is exceptionally bright and was exceptionally really colorful. A lot of that you can you don't need to dive though you can experience that just snorkeling papua new guinea i went to the island of new britain and i stayed at a dive resort and we went out several times did the deepest dive i ever did we went down to 45 meters which is a little below where you want to go for recreational diving the, the limit is usually about 40 meters but they had some pygmy seahorses down there we also saw a japanese zero that was in the water from the war and you could actually see right into the cockpit and everything. And uh, the other real cool thing was in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, where I was able to dive the lighthouse. And the lighthouse of Alexandria was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, well, parts of it are still there underwater. Uh, it collapsed around the year 1500 from an earthquake. And the parts of it that were on land were reused to uh, build a fort, which is still there called Fort Katabi. And the rest of it's all in the water. 
That's amazing. Well, I also want to ask you about some of your really cold weather travel. Let's call it that. You have actually hung out with and photographed polar bears. Now, I've been on some safaris and I've seen some cool animals, but I have never seen polar bears in the wild. Can you talk about how that experience was for you and where that was and where if people wanted to go see polar bears, they could do that? Okay, the best place to see polar bears in the world, bar none, is Churchill, Manitoba. If you look at a map on Hudson Bay, there's this little part that like juts out. And that's the town of Churchill, and it's located on the Churchill River. The reason why it's the best place is because the fresh water coming in from the Churchill River and the currents of Hudson Bay, which go counterclockwise, meet at that point. And so it decreases the salinity of the water. You have cold water coming in from the north. So that's the first part that freezes. The polar bears I've done two trips up to Churchill and I've seen other polar bears, but basically they don't really do much during the summer. They just live off the fat that they accumulated. So they're waiting to go out and hunt seals, which is their primary and pretty much only food source. But they can't do that until the ice comes in. So at Churchill is where they sit and wait for the ice to come in. And you can go out. They have these things called tundra buggies, which is a cross between a monster truck and a school bus. So the bears can come right up. They can stand on their hind legs and not reach any of the people inside. And one day we saw 43 polar bear, which was an enormous number. Wow. You've also been dog sledding in the Canadian Yukon and you've crossed the Arctic Circle. Can you talk about some of those experiences and how that was for you? Yeah, I got to go dog sledding a couple of times. I was up in Whitehorse to photograph the Yukon Quest. And the Yukon Quest is like the Iditarod, except it's harder. And it's a longer race. It's a lot more mountainous. There are fewer checkpoints where you can get supplies. It's kind of the musher's race. And it was very interesting because these people who do sled dogs, they don't make a lot of money. You know, if you're the greatest sled dog racer in the world, you might make enough to cover dog food costs and things like that. So it's not a very lucrative profession to be in. So we went up there and did that. And dog sledding is is really a blast. The dogs love to run. There's a break, but there's no gas pedal. There's no need for one. And if you fall off the sled, the dogs won't stop. They will just keep running. So that was that was a great experience. And also when well, we were up there, so we, we were there in Whitehorse for the start of the race. And every year it's from Whitehorse to Fairbanks. They'll reverse it every year. So one year it starts in one city, next year it ends. Uh, but the midpoint is Dawson City in northern Yukon. And I'd been up there previously in the summer. I, so we were up in the winter. And there's a mandatory 48-hour layover that all the teams have to have. So when they, they check in, that's when the clock starts, 48 hours. It's an opportunity for the mushers to sleep and for the dogs to get rest, to get fed. They get checked out, everything. And one of the guys I saw was there, I got to talk to him briefly in Whitehorse, was Lance Mackey. Lance Mackey was the four-time winner of the Yukon Quest and a four-time winner of the Iditarod. And he's the only person to have ever won both races in the same year, and he did it twice. Some People thought it impossible. Well, the year I was there, he had to drop out because his dogs got injured. And I have never seen anyone so depressed in my life at the bar just getting hammered and shit-faced because he felt so bad of having to drop out. And also, you know, these people, their only friends, a lot of them, year-round are these dogs. They live in the middle of nowhere in Alaska or up in northern Canada, and it's the dogs that are their companions. So if something happens to them, they really take it personally. Wow. Well, another thing that you have done that is amazing is you have visited over 400 UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Can you explain, I guess, first of all, what a UNESCO World Heritage Site is, and then talk about that experience and why you started structuring a lot of your travel around seeing those sites? Officially, it is our cultural or natural places which are recognized by UNESCO as being outstanding contributions to humanity. Unofficially, the way I describe it is it's the Hall of Fame for national parks and historic sites. So there are 426 or seven sites in the national park system right now, and there are 22 World Heritage Sites in the U.S., to put that into perspective. 
And early on, when I started my travels, I went to Volcanoes National Park in Hawaii, and I saw a sign that said it was a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I didn't know what that was. So I got home that evening, went on my computer, looked it up. I go, huh. Well, I'm going to be going to East Island. That's that's a World Heritage Site. And then I was in New Zealand. And I said, well, they have two World Heritage Sites. So maybe I'll go stop and see them. So on, on the way, I stopped at one, Tongariro National Park. And then I went to uh, Milford Sound, which was another. And then the next one on my list, I was like, well, I'm going to go to the Solomon Islands. East Ronell was a World Heritage Site. And to this day, it's probably the least visited one I've ever been to. I really had to go out of my way to get there. It was It was difficult. You know, it's an outer island. I asked them, how many visitors do you get a year? They said 10. Wow. The pickup truck, we landed on one. It's a raised coral atoll, one of the largest in the world. It has like a 100-meter tall cliff that surrounds most of the island. And on one-third of the island is this big lake. It's a brackish water lake. So you land on one end of the island on a grass strip. And then they had these pickup trucks that took us to the other end. We had, I shit you not, eight flat tires on this 20-mile trip from one end of the island to the other. And they had no spare. Wow. And they fixed it every time. And the tire, because it's going over coral, basically, raised coral. So it was, and they had loaded this with so many people who had been, who came back from Honiara to the island and were all on this truck. So it was this tiny little Japanese pickup truck that had way too many people and too much stuff in it. And it was an incredible experience. It was the most isolated, I think, I had ever really felt traveling. Because it wasn't just that I was in a remote island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But if, if anything happened, if I wanted to get back to civilization, the act of doing so would have been really, really hard because it was in the middle of nowhere. I had one of the best meals of my life followed by one of the worst meals in my life in quick succession. Uh, the first night I was there, they had a fresh coconut crab tilapia that they caught in the lake. And then in the next morning, it was package of ramen noodles with no flavoring and white bread that got smushed in the trip there. <laughs> That's amazing. What are some of the other highlights of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites? Obviously, some are incredibly famous and they're big tourist destinations and people know them, but some of them, like which ones would you say were really epic and amazing that maybe you'd put on people's radars that they might not have heard of or might not be at the top of their list? Nahani National Park. Nahani National Park is one of the best national parks in the world. Almost no one knows about it because it's in northern Canada in the Northwest Territories. Most Canadians don't know about it. But to give you an idea of its significance, in 1978, when they created the first World Heritage Sites, there were 12 of them. It included the Galapagos, it included Yellowstone, and it included Nahani. It's really up there, right? But the thing is, there are no roads connecting it to the rest of the world. So you have to fly in by float plane. And Nahani gets 800 visitors a year. That's it. But it really is one of the most incredible places on earth. And I, I drove all the way up to Fort Simpson, Northwest Territories, which is a hell of a drive to fly in. Uh, and I also visited along the way uh, Wood Buffalo National Park, which is both in mostly in Alberta, but also in the Northwest Territories. And to give you an idea, you can drive there, but it only gets 1,500 visitors a year. Most of those are people that live in the city of Fort Smith. It's the second largest national park in the world by area, second only to a site in Greenland. And when I was talking to the people at the tourism board in Alberta, I was the first journalist that ever wanted to go there. Even though this is one of the largest national parks in the world, no one cared to go. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of my travels, I end up going to a lot of these places that are kind of out of the way. And I'd say 90% of the time, it's a pleasant experience. I discovered something that I didn't know about just going there because it's it's a UNESCO site. There are some duds, but for the most part, it's brought me to places that I probably never would have known to visit before. So Nahani National Park, we're definitely going to link all these up in the show notes, by the way, so folks can just go to one place and uh, check out your recommendations, Gary. Any other UNESCO World Heritage sites that we can put on that list as well that you'd encourage? Maybe they're less famous or less well-known, but you'd say people should definitely see them? Sukhothai is one. Uh, a lot of people go to Thailand, they go to Bangkok, maybe they go to Chiang Mai, they go to Phuket. But between Chiang Mai and Bangkok is Sukhothai, which is the former imperial capital of the Kingdom of Siam. And everyone skips it over, and it's great. I would say it's like if you've ever been to Angkor in Cambodia, it's smaller, but it's 
nicer. Like they keep it up, they mow the lawn, you can rent a bike. It's a very pleasant experience. Lots of temples all over the temple grounds uh, for you to see. And so many people never bother to go there. The town of Padua in Italy, it's a 20-minute train ride from Venice. Everybody goes to Venice. Nobody goes to Padua. It has the oldest botanical garden in the world. It has the largest public square in Europe. It has a huge cathedral with the remains of St. Anthony. And it has the Scrivingi Chapel, which is one of the greatest works of art in Europe. And no one bothers to go and no one knows about it. And I've always said that the problem with over-tourism is not that there are too many tourists. It's that it's everyone visiting the same place. I think it's mostly ignorance. Some of it willful, some of it not, that they don't know anywhere else. And they have it so fixed in their mind, they grew up with images of being on a gondola in Venice or being in the presence of the Eiffel Tower in Paris, because that's what they see. That's been hammered in their head in movies and television and everything else. They don't know anything else. I mean, I've had discussions with people who are going into the Pacific, and I've been to a lot of the Pacific, and they just, they've seen the overwater bungalows in Bora Bora, and they just must go there. Nowhere else, they must go there, because that's what they saw. And I tried telling them, I was like, wow, you know, there are some great places. You can go to Pontepe, you can go to, nope, it has to be that, because that's all they know. And the weird thing is, I probably have more places I want to visit now, after having spent a decade and a half traveling around the world extensively than I did when I started because I'm aware of more places having been, been to a lot of places. It kind of opens up more. Uh, a good example of this, I started this, this podcast, it's a daily podcast. And one of the first questions people have asked is, well, are you going to run out of ideas? Today I'll be recording show number 352. The list of show ideas just hit 400. And so I'm adding far more ideas as I come across stuff that I think would make for good shows. So it just keeps growing. And the same is true with places to, to visit. The more you visit, the more places you, you learn about that you want to visit. So let me ask you this, Gary. What is your approach to learning when you travel? How do you structure your experiences, including trip preparation and historical research and that kind of stuff, to optimize your learning experiences as you travel to new places? For your typical, you're visiting a cathedral-type place, If it's possible, I try to get a guide for a place you're visiting. It's not always possible. Sometimes they do free tours. Sometimes, you know, you can follow another group that's kind of where there's someone describing things and you can just sort of stay in the outer edge and pay attention to what they're saying. But the reason is, if you don't have someone to put everything in context and to explain it, you run into the problem that a lot of people have is they go somewhere and it's just old stuff. And that's, that's basically, oh, here's some old stuff. There's some old stuff. It's a cathedral here, a cathedral there. It's all the same. And the only way you can not take that approach is if you get the history and the backstory behind why was this cathedral built? Who built it? What was the impetus for building it? How long did it take to build? What's special? What are the relics they have? Because every cathedral has different relics. That was the whole drawing card, right? There's something architecturally significant probably about the building. It seems like there are a lot of cathedrals in Europe, and there kind of are, but not a ton. And so, you know, the building process is going to be different. So to understand that backstory, and then you realize that every cathedral is not the same, that there's something different about it, and that there's a story behind it and the city and the bishop that was arrogant enough to want to get this done to make it his legacy or the king or the prince or whatever who raised the funds for it, and then it stopped for 100 years because there was a war, and then they started it back up, whatever it might be, to understand that story. And too often, I go to these places, and I see people, and they just they walk around. It's like, oh, old stuff. We're supposed to keep, to be here to get the cultural experience. The same in a museum. They just walk around. Oh, this is art, and I'm supposed to have a profound experience, but I don't understand it. To have someone, if you're not familiar with these sort of things, point it out to you. I've done a lot of reading and research on like Roman history to the point where I could probably go to a given Roman ruin and understand what a lot of it is there for on my own. But even still, I would want to have someone with me who knows the specifics of that place who can point out or or even just to point out, oh, check out this thing over here. You might have missed it. Like if you've ever been to Pompeii in Italy, you can see on the corners of some of the buildings signs pointing to the brothel. 
And it's really just a phallus carved in the stone. And it's very easy to miss. You'll notice that in the streets, there are these stepping stones to get across. That's because the streets were completely filled with filth, mud and human waste. And, you know, the carts would go through it, but you would never want to walk in that stuff. And that's something you don't see in the movies. There are all sorts of these little things and things they keep discovering and finding to give you an idea as to how they lived. There's a great villa in Pompeii where it has in Latin, beware of dog in a mosaic on the ground, uh, which is very, this, you know, very similar to a kind of sign you'd see today. So all of that stuff, I think, brings it meaning. And it always helps if you have someone that can do it. In fact, one of the things I'm going to be doing probably next year is I've run tours in the past for my followers. I'm going to be running some tours next year. I was thinking through this, like, well, how can I do something different? Because normally you have a group tour and what, what you do is you fly into city A, stay there for a few days, then you go to B to C to D, and then you end up in some city and everyone leaves. And that that's kind of the way it works. And I was thinking, well, what if you could do something for people who are really geeky and nerdy? And I was thinking, well, let's say you go to Rome. You're going to go to the Colosseum. You're going to throw a coin in the Trevi Fountain. You'll line, sit in line at the Vatican. And that that's probably your Rome experience. And that's fine. But there's a lot of stuff in Rome that no one ever sees that's really cool. If you go to Ostia Antica, which was the port city of Rome, it's 45 minutes away, easy, quick train ride. Hardly anyone goes there. And that's about as good as Pompeii. You can go up into the hills just outside of Rome, 45 minutes away in Tivoli. And uh, there's Hadrian's Villa up there. I was there. I basically had the whole place to myself. The Nero's Palace was the largest building ever in the ancient world and uh, was one of the reasons why people hated him so much. There's part of it that's still there. It got buried and you have to get a special tour to go see it. The Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica was built where it was built because of the tomb of Peter. And if you go underneath, it's underneath the main altar. And they discovered this in an excavation after World War II. Uh, there's a Roman cemetery under the altar in the necropolis, not the grotto where a lot of the popes are buried, but the necropolis. And they only let like eight people in at a time. And it's very hard to get a ticket. So it's like, and there's more of this stuff, right? All over Rome that people never see. It's like, well, what if we just did a tour? You drop your bags in one room. And you do not leave that room for the duration of the tour. And we go to the restaurant where Caesar was killed in Pompey's theater. And we can we can actually see all this stuff. And we can get guides who are PhDs in history or art history and really have this explained. So that's what I think I'm going to be doing going forward is leading those kind of tours. That is awesome, man. So, Gary, when you reflect back on all of your travel since 2007, what would you say are the main ways your travel experiences have impacted you over the years? You know, when I start before I started traveling, I had a 3000 square foot house on a lake. It was very nice. I, I don't ever see myself doing something like that again. You know, I lived out of a bag for a very long time. I'm very happy now. Um, I simplified my wardrobe. I buy some gray t-shirts off Amazon. I have some socks and underwear I get from Amazon. And when they get old, I throw them out. And then I order the exact same thing on Amazon. It's kind of the Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg approach to a wardrobe. You just wear the same thing every day. It's something you never need to worry about. So that's been simplified. Greater appreciation for the role that culture plays. You know, when, you're, when you grow up in a certain place, you grow up in that culture and you don't you don't know anything else. It's like a fish in water, right? You don't know if the fish knows about anything else other than that it's in water. And when you get away from it, you realize how powerful it can be. That It's not things like the food or the dancing or the way people dress. Those are trappings of culture. The real culture is in people's heads, and it's a way of thinking or a set of assumptions that you go by. And that can differ radically. I remember I was in Samoa, and I was on the island of Savai'i, which is kind of the, the second island. And we we're driving around and I noticed there wasn't really any commerce. There was no evidence of any stores, shops, businesses, nothing. It was, it was village and each village had maybe a little kiosk where people could buy things. And that was it. There was no evidence that there was anything else. And we asked a guy who was a cab driver. It's like, what's the deal? There's nothing here. And he explained, it's like, well, you know, I have to give 90% of what I make to my village and my family. That's just what you do. That's not a law. It's just the cultural norm. And it's a system that probably worked great 
in the 19th century and before. So it's very hard to get ahead. It's very hard to start a business. So what most Samoans do, I shouldn't say most, but a lot, uh, they'll go to New Zealand or somewhere else and they'll find jobs and then they send money back home. And this is actually true in a lot of the world. You know, I'm talking to people in India and uh, one of the things is that Indians who leave India tend to be quite successful, more so than they are in India. And one of the reasons, as opposed, you know, in government corruption and everything else is a problem is if you start a business, it starts doing well. You're going to have your mother or your aunt will come to you and say, well, your cousin, he could really use a job. You know, could you could you do that? And suddenly everyone starts asking you for, you know, we could really use the money. We could use this. And those are all they're not laws, but they're cultural drains on growing a business. But if you leave, you don't have any of those constraints, right? You're in America or Britain or, or whatever. You're, you have kind of a freedom and you can still send money back and still support your family. But it's not in the form of constant, you know, asking or giving people jobs or things like that. So and here's the other story. I told you the story about the guy in Samoa. I was in Hong Kong. This was in 2007 and I was walking around one night and I walked past a Burger King and okay, fine. They have fast food. The difference was the front window of this Burger King was filled with flowers and like it was a funeral. And I was like, why are there flowers in a Burger King? I didn't understand this. So I went in the Burger King to check it out and I started looking at the flowers and they were mostly in Chinese with, with cards attached to the flowers. And then I eventually found one that was in English. And it said, congratulations on your grand opening. And it was a celebration that starting a new business in this culture was a reason for celebration. It was something you would send flowers to. And it's a very different attitude uh, than what you have in, in other parts of the world. And again, it's not a law. It's a cultural thing. And it's just the set of assumptions and beliefs that we all work under. And it's very hard to get yourself out of a cultural bubble. And even in the U.S., and other developed nations, it, it's not just that we're all under the same bubble, but we all may have separate little bubbles. That There's entire parts of the country that don't talk to each other, and they live under their same set of beliefs, and, and they don't communicate with other people. And uh, getting out. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I wanna offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. From that can be really difficult, and I think that's one of the biggest advantages of traveling. Now, Gary, you have spent time in a lot of very different and diverse cultures over the years. What tips do you have for travelers on sort of the travel ethics of going into other cultures, how to be a more thoughtful and respectful traveler? I practice something that I call travel conservatism. It's not political conservatism. It's just a way of behaving. Never wear anything with writing on it. Don't wear a sweatshirt or a T-shirt that has anything. Just wear a solid color or a button-up shirt, whatever it is, all right? Don't, don't do anything to make you stand out. Don't get into petty arguments. I was at an internet cafe in Bali once, and this woman gets into this big fight with this woman at the counter over what I learned was the equivalent of 10 cents. Not worth it at all. And the woman who was fighting was Australian, and I think you know, maybe they don't come from a tipping culture, but I don't think 10 cents is worth getting into a fight. It's just not worth your trouble. If you go to a restaurant and you order beef and they give you chicken, most of the time I'll just have the chicken unless they, it was very clearly some sort of scam and it was a bait and switch type of thing. And, and those things do happen. I'm going to let it slide if it's an issue of communication. 
and to just not get worked up about things. Things that are going to be late. Your flight is going to be late. You may have to stand in a line. Those things are going to happen. And there are a lot of people that just get worked up about it. It's like, and you know, they, they demand to see the manager or or Karen or something like that. You just have to kind of go with it and stuff will work itself out and don't get uptight about everything. And I think the, lo- the longer you travel, if you're on a two week trip, I can understand why people it's like, you know, I'm taking time off from work. This cost me a lot of money. I don't want to waste my time. But you still need to accept the fact that things are going to work a little bit different and maybe a little bit less efficiently when you travel abroad. That's really good advice. I agree. Gary, at this point in your life, after all of your travels, in what ways do you see the world differently than maybe you did before you started traveling? Less concerned about material stuff and uh, seeing the importance of culture and more willing to just, you know, live and let live. I don't think it, it's radically, I think if someone met me before or knew me before I started traveling and knew me now, I'd fundamentally be the same person. I've just had more experiences and I've seen more things. You know, one of the things I always have to watch out when I'm talking with people is that I don't want to turn into that guy, right? You know, you're having a conversation about something. It's like, well, actually, when I was in Botswana, you know, and the, you come off like a pretentious douchebag. And, and I found myself doing that a lot because at one point when I came back, that was all I had done for a decade. And so the only things I had to talk about were these things. And I realized, well, you know, I'd be talking to someone, they have no idea. And just constantly bringing this stuff up was a little bit annoying. So I kind of actually learned to, to shut my mouth in a lot of cases as well. And a shocking number of people just don't care. <laughs> so I, I learned that as well. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about the podcast as well as the blog and the photography as well. So let's jump into that. And maybe let's start just back a little bit with the blog and the photography and then your new venture with this particular podcast. Can you talk a little bit about your tips for building a great travel blog and if you feel that post-pandemic, it's still a good opportunity for people to start a travel blog and that there's meaningful opportunity to build that and monetize that, or if you think that there are alternative things that would be better to do than a travel blog at this point. I would not start a travel blog right now. The end. It's a very different thing from when I started. Facebook, and social media and Google have basically killed travel blogging. All travel blogging is now is SEO. That's it. You don't have to travel. In fact, one of the most successful travel websites out there right now is nothing more than machine-generated keywords with 15 things to do in X, 15 things to do in Y, 15 things to do in Z. And if you go to the front page, that's all it is. Every article, exactly the same. The photos are from PhotoBucket. They just research it by, by doing searches online. And it gets tens of millions of page views a month. And I don't even want to mention the name of it. And I used to follow like 100 travel blogs via RSS to see what everyone else was doing. And it eventually, that's all anyone was doing. Everyone was writing the same article. That's all it is. And it's all crabs in a bucket trying to rank for SEO. And your travels and your stories and your opinions and your expertise, none of that matters. None of it matters. And that's if you go to any of these travel blog groups on Facebook or anything, and I was in a clubhouse room where people were talking about it, and there were a bunch of these newish bloggers who had no clue who I was, and I didn't know who they were. They were just giving the same advice that people were doing like seven, eight years ago. And that's all it is. It's just you get search traffic, you get enough to get on Mediavine, and uh, then you can, you know, you, you do some affiliate ads, and that's it. If you want to do that, go for it. I'm very disillusioned with the whole thing at this point. It's it's not why I got into this. Podcasting is far closer to what blogging was when I started. My blog was my social media. I'd write an article. I'd write a clever headline. It wasn't SEO keyword driven. I'd use a lyric from a song or something just to be clever. And then I'd write my thoughts about wherever I was. And people would leave comments because they came to my site every day. And that's what it was. And the social media killed that aspect of it. But with podcasting, there's no company that runs podcasting, right? Spotify and Apple may have large market shares, but there's not one 
algorithm that controls podcasting because audio is a very difficult thing to control. Even with video on YouTube, you still have one company that runs everything. And every week or so, there's always some YouTuber that gets banned by accident for whatever or something innocuous where they can take it all away. And if you look at the CPM, the effectual CPM rates that you're getting on YouTube, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And you can make an equivalent amount of money with podcasting for a far smaller audience and create far deeper connections than you certainly can do on blogging. And it, just if you look at the competition, the number of travel podcasts is several orders of magnitude smaller than the number of websites because there's a higher barrier to entry. Doing an audio show and editing it is just harder than sitting down and writing and regurgitating up whatever. Everyone has a smartphone in their pocket now where they can take photos, but very few people want to get into podcasting. And I'm sure you've seen the stats. Like there were a ton of podcasts that were launched in 2020 because everybody was at home. 80% of them were dead before the year was out. Most podcasts don't make it to the seventh episode. When I decided to launch a new show, you start a new venture. It's very easy to get caught into the dream of success. You vision what it's going to be like when you're successful. I didn't think of that. What I envisioned myself doing was sitting at my computer every day for several years, which is not the sexy part of doing it, but is exactly what you have to do if you want to be successful. But yeah, I think I created a business plan when I started. I knew exactly you know, how I was going to do it. And right now I'm just executing on it. Can you talk a little bit Gary, about what have been the biggest leverage points for you to grow your audience? I know you're doing a daily show, so you're obviously putting out a lot more episodes. And then for people that subscribe to your show, they're listening to seven episodes a week instead of one episode a week for a weekly show. So the frequency is one aspect of it. But in addition to that, can you talk about what you're doing to build the audience for your show and what your business strategy has been to grow your audience at the speed that you've done? Because in less than a year of this podcast, you're getting over 100,000 monthly downloads, which is really impressive. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that? So I've built a blog to be pretty successful, grown audiences on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, six-figure audiences, I've verified accounts and everything. One thing I've learned is that you build an audience on a platform from within that platform. Meaning, if you want to grow a podcast, you need to find people who listen to podcasts. That sounds like a tautology, and it kind of is, but putting a link on your website is really not going to do much. Even social media promotion is really not going to do much. What will do something is appearing on other people's podcasts like yours. That's why I have a standing policy. I will never say no to an interview request ever. I don't care how small your podcast is. I don't care if it's brand new. I'll take the time. If you thought enough of me to ask me to be on your show, then sure, I, I will take the time to do that. Maybe that'll change in the future. But as of right now, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I promote my show on, I've been buying advertising on podcast apps like Podcast Addict, Podcast Republic, Overcast, places like that, where I know 100% of the people who are going to see it are podcast listeners, flat out. That has been fairly successful. And what you do is you just calculate the value of a subscriber. So if your primary revenue model is advertising, it's very simple to calculate. All you do is calculate the RPM for a podcast episode, which is just adding up all the CPMs for all your ads. So for my show, I figured $40. For a $25 main spot, and then I could always throw on a $15 post roll or, or something else. I know I can get more than 40 because I've already talked to people that said once I, my traffic gets to a high enough threshold, they would have me in their network at a $50 CPM. Plus, I could do stuff on top of that as well. So I could get conceivably $60 to $75. But okay, take that. Then you take the number of episodes you produce per year. Then you want to divide it by 1,000. So basically, if you're doing a weekly show, that's going to be about 5% of your RPM is going to be the value per subscriber. And I'm using 5% to make the math easy. Assume 50 episodes a year, you take Christmas off or whatever. So let's say you had a $50 RPM. Your value per subscriber would be about $2.50. So for me, because I'm doing a daily show, that value is around $14. 
I saw Jordan Harbinger, who actually, and this is the other thing, I've seen people talk about growing your podcast. I just figured this out. And then all the people who talk about podcasting, no one, I've never heard anyone mention this, yet it's the people that, surprise, actually have big podcasts when I've heard them do interviews, and they all know the number that's the value of their subscriber. I just saw a thing where Jordan Harbinger said, yeah, it's $20 because he's he has a longer show. He does two or three a week and yeah, $20 makes about sense. So when you're then buying advertising, you want to be able to convert. I can get new subscribers somewhere between 50 cents to $2. So I can get a $14 subscriber for two bucks. Well, I can do that all day. There's a period when you're first starting out, however, where you're in kind of a no man's land where no one wants to sell you advertising until you get to a certain threshold. So there is an investment where you're not going to see a return immediately. And that's fine. It's just like any other business, right? You start a restaurant, you have to buy tables and a kitchen and all this stuff before you open the doors. And it's not a, an enormous amount of money. You could probably get to that escape velocity of like 5,000 listeners per show or something spending about $5,000 maybe in promotion. And I'm also experimenting with Reddit ads. I'm going to start experimenting with Quora. Who knows what Facebook's going to be doing? They just launched some stuff. But basically, I'm searching for people who I know are podcast listeners. And going forward, I may end up buying ads on other shows where I think there's going to be a similar audience, either putting an ad for my show in the ad slot or maybe a full feed drop where they put an episode of my show in their feed for a few days before they delete it. That's the secret. And if you look at what the major networks do, like Wondery and iHeartRadio and stuff like that, they launch a new show by promoting it on their other shows. They promote their podcasts on podcasts, and it works incredibly well. And they are able to launch new shows out the gate with you know many thousands, if not tens of thousands of new listeners by doing it off the backs of the other shows. And if you're an independent podcaster, you just need to work with other independent podcasters to do that promotion. That is awesome advice, Gary. I appreciate you breaking all of that down. Let me ask you one more question and then we'll move into the lightning round and wrap this up. Can you talk about the significance of personal brand building? Because one of the things that strikes me that you have done incredibly successful is you have built a personal brand and you have been able to transition from a social media platform to a blog, to a podcast and all of these different things. Can you talk about any tips that you have for building an effective personal brand? Yeah, I guess if you're going to have a brand, it's just everyone talks about authenticity. Yet so many of the people that talk about authenticity are just fucking fake. And you just really have to be yourself. If you're seeing what other people are doing and that's successful and you try to do what they're doing because it's successful, you will not be successful because you're just doing what everyone else is doing. You cannot separate yourself from the crowd by emulating the crowd. And that is exactly what most people are trying to do. I see it all the time on Instagram where they see a photo does really well. And so they try to recreate that photo. Oh, the internally lit dome tent under the Milky Way photo, the my feet sticking out over the beach photo. They're all kind of the same. And there are certain tropes that work very well. And they just repeat these types of things because they see everyone else doing it and they want the likes and they want the adulation. But I don't think they're necessarily beginning to get the respect. And we confuse popularity with authority and expertise. That is an awesome place to bring this portion of the interview to a close. And Gary, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Let's go for it. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? Dune. And read it before the movie comes out if you haven't seen it. What is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? This is going to sound dumb, but I've been burned by it many times. Always carry a pen with you when you fly. I can't tell you the number of times I've landed somewhere and you have to fill out some sort of you know uh, immigration card and they don't have any pens and they don't have any on the flight. <laughs> and then you're stuck there, the last person to go through waiting for some sort of pen or something to fill everything out. Just have a freaking pen somewhere on your person. It'll save you a lot of problems. Agree with that. That's a really good one. 
Gary, who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with, just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation? Philip Glass, the composer. Awesome. He's in his 80s now. He had a fascinating life. You know, he traveled the Silk Road. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work. I don't know if I'd actually want to meet him. I think you never want to meet the people you you look up to because they're almost always going to be disappointing. But I think I would like to meet him sometime. I think that'd be great. Awesome. Knowing everything that you know now, if you were able to go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Gary? Travel sooner. Don't wait so long. (laughs) That's awesome advice, man. I love it. If I had started traveling right after I sold my business, I'd been doing this way before everyone else. I think you'd be a very different situation today. I probably waited too long to start doing it. Awesome. All right, Gary, of all the places that you've been now, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you'd most recommend people check out? South Georgia Island has to be number one. Can't fly there. You have to take a ship. Usually it's on the way to Antarctica. But South Georgia is usually the highlight of the season for the Antarctica cruise. It's far better than Antarctica, even though Antarctica is kind of the sexy destination because it's a continent. South Georgia is actually, and everyone I know that's been there has kind of said the same thing. I'll go with all number two, Torngat Mountains National Park, because I already mentioned Nahani. Torngat Mountains is in the northern tip of Labrador. Again, it only gets about 800 visitors a year. It's a national park that's run jointly with Parks Canada and the local Inuit community. There are fjords in the park. You can see polar bears. Just an absolutely amazing place. They have a base camp you can stay at in these little kind of geodesic dome huts. That's uh, absolutely fantastic. And uh, I've been told they actually have self-service out there now. So you can actually stay in your phone. Oh, boy, for the next one. Let's go with northern Ethiopia. The Tigray region has been suffering a conflict for the last year. Everything I've heard about it has been very bad. Lots of killings and murders. But it's a fantastic place to visit in Axum. The Danakil Depression, one of the lowest points on Earth in the East African Rift, one of the hottest and lowest places in the world. Almost died when I was there. But now that I know what I'm getting myself into, I could go back in a heartbeat now that I know what it entails. And Ethiopia is a up-and-coming country, I think. It's probably a little bit better off than a lot of uh, parts of Africa. And I think with the new dam they're going to be building, there's going to be a lot of growth in Ethiopia over the next 10 years. So I think it's it's definitely an up-and-coming country. So uh, I, I'll go with those. Awesome. All right, Gary, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places you've never been that are currently the highest on your list you'd most like to see? I will go with the Faroe Islands. I have never been to Peru. So going up into the Andes and like Machu Picchu, that's kind of one of the the big holes on my list. And I have technically been to the People's Republic of China, but I've been to Hainan Island. And I haven't seen most of the country. So I've never been to Beijing. I've never been to the Great Wall. I've never been to anything really in China. So there's a whole lot to see in China and Russia as well. I've been to St. Petersburg, but I've not gone really anywhere inland. And the issue with, with Russia is just that the visa is such a pain in the ass that, you know, I keep waiting for some sort of future change that could make that easier. But that never seems to happen. Well, I got a 30-day Russian visa in 2019, so I just got it in the U.S., went into the embassy, got the 30-day visa, and it was just a unbelievable experience spending 30 days in Russia. I split the first two weeks between St. Petersburg and Moscow. You know what St. Petersburg is like. Moscow is also unbelievable. And then the final two weeks, I took the Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow across Siberia, went to Lake Baikal, went to the different Siberian towns, and then went down over the border to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. And then from there, we went across the Gobi Desert and all of that stuff. And there's so much amazing stuff to see in Russia. So the 30-day visa for Americans anyways is definitely the way to go. Other people can get longer visas, but it was completely amazing on every level. So... All right, Gary, I want you to let people know at this point how they can find you, follow you on social media, connect with you, and check out all of your amazing content. I mean, first of all, your photography is completely epic and insane, and I want everybody to go check out your photographs from around the world. Check out your blog and also for sure, listen to your new daily podcast, which I have really been enjoying. I mean, first of all, it's super interesting topics and they're all completely different. So every day I never know what it's going to be. And it's always super fascinating and unique and it's short. 
So it's maybe 10 minutes of time and you learn a really substantive bit of history about something that's super interesting. So I definitely want folks to be able to come over and subscribe to your podcast as well. So how should people find you and come into your world? Wherever you are listening to this podcast, you can also listen to Everything Everywhere Daily. And that's really what I'm promoting. Other than that, you can find me wherever. I think I've posted two photos to Instagram in the last six months. I don't really do a whole lot on Twitter anymore. Everything's really kind of on the on the podcast right now. But yeah, as soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm finishing up uh, the next episode, which is about the assassination of William McKinley. And yesterday's show was on the history of video games. And before that, it was the voyages of the Chinese explorer Zhang He, who assembled a fleet of ships that were far larger than anything Europe ever produced 100 years before the age of exploration. So parts of history that a lot of people don't you know, know about or they're forgotten. Yeah. And they're super interesting too. Like when I started listening to your show, I just kind of scrolled through the episodes and I was just like clicking on it. I was like, Ooh, I want to hear that one. Right. Like Salvador, your episode on Salvador Dali. I was like, Ooh, I, I've seen a lot of Dali's work around the world. I want to hear about this. Right. And it's just 10 minutes of really substantive and interesting history about Dali. Or you do an episode on like, why is Citizen Kane considered the best movie of all time? And you do a really interesting history of Orson Welles and the whole making of that film and everything else. So it's all super substantive, super interesting, and super short. It's 10 minutes or less of of your day. So I'm, I'm really enjoying the podcast. We're going to link it up in the show notes so that everybody can check it out there and subscribe. We'll also put your social media handles and your blog URL so people can check out your amazing photography because uh, I definitely want people able to see that as well. So folks, you can find all of that in one place. Just go to themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and there we'll have all the ways for you to connect with Gary and check out his podcast. Gary, this was amazing, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Always glad to talk. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.